Volume Three, Chapter Six of *The Rebel Rose* by Justin McCarthy and Rosa Campbell Praed. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter Six: The East End Expedition. There was a great deal of jubilation among all the old-fashioned Tories that and the previous day. The government had put their foot down. Stout old warriors said in the Carlton Club and the Conservative, and they had brought the whole revolutionary scheme to an end we shall hear no more of it sir hear no more of it but among other members of the party there was much doubt and misgiving numbers of the younger men who did not by any means go with bellarmine and his little band of progressive democrats yet felt the strongest doubt as to whether the position lord bosworth had taken up could possibly be maintained they are only playing into champion's hands many shrewd and sound conservatives said and there were those who maintained that in the cabinet itself there were sinking hearts and dissatisfied consciences reports were everywhere that champion had a great democratic move fully schemed out and ready such reports were naturally contradicted in authoritative quarters but everything is contradicted now skeptical persons said and many would persist in regarding the reports themselves as at the least only pilot balloons thrown up into the air by champion and his closer circle of friends in the meantime lord saxon whose word no one ever thought of questioning and who had only come to town that morning was at the club telling everybody who chose to ask him that he knew nothing of any definite scheme and did not believe any such scheme was in existence the air of clubland and editorial and political regions was thickened with rumors and reports and denials and protests and conjectures of all kinds bellarmine avoided his clubs and kept out of the way as much as possible more particularly out of the way of tressel who had let fly a sheaf of telegrams and who always sleeping-looking imperturbable and smoking endless cigarettes was rushing about in hansoms in various directions yet when he went down to the house bellarmine felt that something was coming and very speedily coming it came in this way sir victor champion made his appearance early in the house of commons that evening earlier that is to say than was usual for him when he was not in office when out of office he seldom came into the house until the greater number of the questions to ministers had been put and answered it was characteristic of the man that he should go straight from the failure of a cherished enterprise to the starting of a totally different one it so happened that he found lord saxon next to him when he took his seat they exchanged a few words of commonplace talk and then those who were near them heard champion say i am going to do something which will probably surprise you but i hope i shall be able to make my position quite clear and satisfactory to you lord saxon looked astonished he flushed up and said nothing the weary questions were brought to an end and then sir victor rose and came forward to the table and there were loud cries of order order intended to drown in advance any possible interruption and every one knew that something momentous was going to happen then champion in a clear commanding but not aggressive tone announced that in consequence of the positive declaration made the other evening by her majesty's ministers against any reform in the organization and procedure of the house of lords 
he had thought it his duty to prepare a resolution on the subject which he proposed at the earliest possible moment to submit to the judgment of the house of commons the resolution which champion read merely called forth an humble address to her majesty praying that her majesty would be graciously pleased not to make any further addition to the peerage of the united kingdom until parliament should have been afforded an opportunity of expressing its opinion on the constitution and working of the house of lords and of declaring whether or not the hereditary principle of legislation was suited to the conditions of the present day a positive outburst of cheering from the radical benches below the gangway followed the reading of the resolution and the cheers were followed by groans and by shouts of defiance from the tories who were at first too stupefied to give forth any expression of feeling then sir victor quietly gave notice that on the day following he should ask the leader of the government whether the government would afford him facilities for an early discussion of that important subject the leader of the house sir rowland chase only nodded his head in mere acceptance of sir victor's notice and engaged in a hasty consultation with one of his colleagues sir victor sat for a moment and looked at lord saxon evidently expecting that saxon would say something to him whether in the way of approval or of remonstrance but lord saxon sat in silence for a moment or two and then got up and walked slowly out of the house without having exchanged a word with champion or any one else whatever may have been his reason there was one point on which champion was inexorable he would not take lord saxon into his confidence yet josephine had been doing her very best to bring saxon round to a recognition of what might be called the general infallibility of champion and had begun to be of good hope that if champion would only be open with him at once he might secure saxon's alliance but champion would not move perhaps he still was convinced that the best way to secure saxon's concurrence was to approach him with a completed scheme a role of allies and a plan of action perhaps he was jealous of the influence which saxon's family and position gave him over the liberal party perhaps he was determined this time to be the unmistakable leader of the party determined that if saxon were to come in at all he must come distinctly as a follower and subordinate perhaps he thought it would be a good thing if by securing the alliance of the progressive tories he could feel himself once for all independent of saxon could be able to say let saxon come in if he prefers it no one who really knew victor champion could doubt that in the depths of his heart there was a patriotic and an impassioned desire for the good of his country but no one who knew him well could fail to know that in the depths of his heart also there was a settled conviction that his own intellect and his own will were the heaven-appointed instruments for the accomplishment of that end lord saxon devoted to champion as he had hitherto been was always a drag on his leader and the leader wanted to feel himself free thus the first trumpet was sounded for the great struggle the long-expected vague apparition had taken shape and stood out clear against the horizon all london had one topic for the next twelve hours or so and the name of victor champion was on every lip it was accompanied with praise and plaudits 
with denunciation and with curses the banning as is the way of such things louder and deeper than the blessing bellarmin had made up his mind to dine in the house of commons that evening he was passing out into the lobby intending to smoke a cigar on the terrace before dinner when one of the doorkeepers stopped him and taking a letter from the sheaf of tan-coloured white and blue envelopes which lined the sides of the sedan chair sentry box in which he sat put it into bellarmin's hand before he even looked at it some strange sweet association was brought upon bellarmin with a light wave of scent the letter was in an ordinary square envelope and the address was written in a very commonplace unsuggestive sort of hand when he opened it he saw that the handwriting inside was different and he read in much surprise the following singular epistle which had at least the merit of going straight to the subject if you are really a friend of miss mary beaton's you ought to know that she is putting herself in a position of danger go down this night to the rule britannia theatre alexandria street shoreditch at nine o'clock use your eyes and you will know what i mean the regular old-fashioned anonymous letter of conventional romance it was written of course in a woman's hand carefully disguised the letters all sloping elaborately from left to right it was perfumed and it was the breath of that perfume which attracted him at once for it was a perfume that mary beaton always used was the letter sent by any of those around mary beaton by lady struthers for example by mary beaton's maid no he could not think that likely any one might use the perfume it was probably a mere chance that it was used or its use might have been deliberate with the view of making him believe that the letter came from miss beaton's own household if so that artifice was not much needed of course he would go to the place perhaps when he got there he should find nothing of any interest to him perhaps he should find himself merely the victim of some silly and meaningless practical joke no matter he would go all the same if there was the slightest faintest ghost of a chance that mary might be in any danger from which he could shelter her that was enough for him why any danger to her should have an east end theatre for its scene and how it was to reveal itself to him when he got there it passed the power of his wits to conjecture the only thing was for him to go and see after all he said to himself there is a great deal of nonsense talked about anonymous letters and the folly and weakness of paying any attention to them many an honest and friendly warning is given in an anonymous letter by a writer who would give no warning if he had to sign his name not quite an heroic personage such a letter writer but one has to take a hint sometimes from other than heroic personages while he was thus reasoning to himself a member of the liberal party a fashionable young man about town seized bellarmin's arm and insisted upon his there and then joining a little dinner which the liberal member was giving to some ladies of his acquaintance in the subterranean dining-room bellarmin allowed himself to be led thither having no excuse ready and having yet an hour and a half to wait before the time named by his mysterious correspondent it was not the scene of his last night's dinner but the public room which was full of little tables and groups more or less animated and more or less smart-looking according to the social sphere they represented it is a solemn and serious obligation upon the county member to entertain at dinner in the house of commons 
the wives and daughters of his bucolic or manufacturing constituents a party of constituents is to be recognized at a glance the constituent and the local man can never be mistaken by one who has ever tasted the sweets and sours of public life the constituent's wife and the wife of the local man are of a less definite type upon these festive occasions the member's wife is usually absent bellarmin felt sorry for a man he knew celebrated as a barrister and a wit and also a member of the tory government who was sadly ministering to the appetite of an excellent lady in an ulster with blinking eyes which she never took off her plate except when she extended a pudgy hand protestingly over her champagne and smiled and blinked at her host in feeble remonstrance there was a good deal of laughter at bellarmin's table about the number of constituents wives who were in the dining-room that night a probable dissolution was augured therefrom and a sort of plebiscite was taken as to whether they abounded most at tory tables the minister cast mock melancholy glances at bellarmin's more brilliant party which numbered two clever members wives well dressed and distinguished and a very pretty girl in a tailor-made gown and a red hat whom bellarmin knew slightly the girl was very lively and amusing and quizzed him about his dinner two nights before of which mr tressel had told her and about his princess who bellarmin thought savagely seemed now common property the conversation was not political but was all about people and london gossip and he would have enjoyed both his dinner and his company had he been in a less preoccupied mood a tory whip came in when dinner was nearly over and stood looking as though he were counting heads and presently the division bell rang which gave bellarmin an excuse for rushing off and not returning he hurried from the dining-room and across the lobby shaking off with an assumption of careless ease some dozen or so of colleagues and acquaintances on the way who were eager to get to talk with him one in particular was a renowned and remorseless bore who lived and bored on the one great theme imperial federation he flung himself across the young tory democrat's way hello bellarmin what's going on he asked i am replied bellarmin with a laugh repeating douglas gerald's old joke and he left the bewildered boor who never made or understood a joke in his life so apollo has saved me bellarmin murmured to himself thinking of horace and his boor as he passed down the member's private entrance and so into palace yard and thence by the covered way into bridge street and on to the thames embankment a few paces down the embankment he hailed a hansom in palace yard every cabman knew him and he did not want to be known just then a little way down the embankment no one would be likely to know him it had often amused him to notice how a few yards of street in london convert a somebody into a nobody in and around palace yard a member of parliament is a great personage policemen rush to protect him from the quick-darting hansom lines of omnibuses are compelled to halt to let him pass the whole traffic of the outer world has to acknowledge his presence and make way for him yet a few yards farther on and his person is unknown his perils are unheeded he is only one of the crowd the cabs may drive at him or over him and welcome so bellarmin walked on a few paces got outside the charmed parliamentary circle of police protection hailed the first cab he met and drove on his unrecognized way 
it was a long drive from blackfriars bridge and the embankment through monotonous miles of the dreariest streets hideous and heart-sickening in their dreadful similarity the cabman drove rapidly at bellarmin's express desire and yet nine o'clock had struck before they reached the place they sought there was no trouble in finding it the cabman knew it well and had driven young swells from the west end there many a time before they stopped at last before a sort of miniature alhambra built at the angle of a small open square which was made light almost as day by the flaring gas-jets that ran along the front of the building it was a gay and busy little square there was a stand of dingy cabs in the centre and there were several stalls with cheap fruit confectionery and buckets of mussels and periwinkles and two or three public-houses which did not seem however to have anything to do with the business of the bar that occupied one side of the entrance to the music-hall each public-house seemed to have its own peculiar group of roughs and gammons who did not join the little stream of people passing in and out of the illuminated door the people were workmen and their wives shop-girls and factory hands with their sweethearts and as they pushed by each other there was a sound of cockney jokes and laughter bellarmin stepped from his cab and made his way into the vestibule where he talked with the box-keeper and a policeman who apparently acted as a check-taker he told them he wanted to see the performance and especially the look of the house and that he did not particularly want to be seen so for a few a very few shillings he got a small well-curtained box near the stage all to himself and found that from thence he could survey the whole audience with little risk of being himself seen by anyone except indeed the performers on the stage these when bellarmin ensconced himself in his nook were three men dressed like bookmakers in white hats and checked trousers and brilliant waistcoats they were singing a comic song which seemed a favorite to judge by the enthusiastic manner in which the audience joined in the chorus of which the burden ran sister joanna whacked the donkey but the old moke wouldn't go or something to that effect and then there was dancing and kicking up of legs and somersaults and the usual comic song business it was a garish place with gilt mirrors on the walls which reflected back the clusters of gas lamps there it was thick with smoke and the hall was crammed with people sitting in rows on benches which at the upper end were baize covered and had little stands before them for the glasses and the cigars on a high chair just below the orchestra sat the master of the ceremonies who called out the number of the pieces and smoked and exchanged jokes with the audience and was every now and then treated to a drink sometimes champagne or what looked like champagne in tin foiled bottles was handed up to the front benches sometimes there was a call for two and two of scotch to keep the spirits up but beer in pewter mugs seemed the general beverage the young men of the audience wore dirty pot-hots and wonderful neckties and the young women sported much cheap finery gaudy feathers and smart jackets and had tousled hair after the approved fashion in factory circles the young men leaned back most of them with one arm round a young woman's shoulders and they gazed into their sweethearts faces and nudged them when anything exquisitely funny or suggestive of some past personal episode tickled their fancy but the nudging was not confined to the young people it was extensively indulged in by the husbands and wives 
and the hard-working gaunt mothers of families seemed to get as much enjoyment out of the performance as their younger and less burdened sisters bellarmin cast his eyes round the house in bewildered search for some indication of the danger which threatened mary beaton some sign of the foretold conspiracy against her he had quick eyes but as they swept the place pit gallery and boxes he could see no face that he knew was he then the victim of some practical joke no he could not believe that or at all events if there were any joke the point of it was yet to come no creature in his or her senses would take the trouble of writing a letter in a disguised hand just for the sake of inducing a young man to pay a visit to an east end music hall if he were a grave and responsible statesman like sir victor champion then indeed one might understand a practical joker's motive in trying to get him to show himself in such a place but there would be no fun whatever in prevailing upon a careless young man about town like bellarmin to show himself there nobody would be surprised if he were seen there nobody would care no he would have to wait for the joke if joke it were at last when he was getting fairly tired of waiting and watching he saw a little movement among some of the occupants of the pit a movement caused by the entrance of two newcomers who were trying to make their way to convenient seats the newcomers were a tall gray-haired man and apparently a slender boy the man was dressed in rusty black clothes and so far as his garb was concerned might have been taken for one of the poorer class of shopkeepers the boy might have been his son but the walk the bold straight stride of the man did not seem to bellarmin's acute eye quite like that of a poor shopkeeper of the east end it was unmistakably the stride of a soldier of a cavalryman now the pair had settled down bellarmin had not yet been able to get a look at their faces some persons were still passing between them and him now the path of sight is clear and yes of course the tall man was general falcon himself apparently under the impression that he was admirably disguised who then was his companion bellarmin strained his sight to get a good look at the features of the supposed boy and he could hardly keep his emotions down his surprise alarm horror when he saw that the face was the face of mary beaton here in this low noisy vulgar east end music hall was mary stuart beaton dressed as a boy for a moment he refused to believe the evidence of his senses it could not be had miss beaton any boy cousin or other such relative who resembled her that surely was more likely than that she herself could be sitting there in such absurd masquerade but no it was impossible that he could be mistaken there were the features there were the eyes the eyes that now were queen-like and now saint-like that now it must be owned were saucy the eyes that sometimes seemed melting with pathetic emotion with compassion with tender pity and that sometimes too flashed out an almost insolent anger it just struck bellarmin at the moment and it sent a cruel pang through him that he had never seen in these wonderful eyes any gleam that spoke of love all the emotions a woman could show through eloquent eyes these speaking eyes 
had told him of again and again save only love he studied her face and he felt satisfied that he was right but he now surveyed her figure as well and he wondered within himself how even in that dull and commonplace crowd she could have escaped suspicion so charmingly feminine were her movements so feminine her outlines he became afraid for her he longed to go near her and warn her that some wandering eye would surely pierce through the screen of her disguise yet he did not dare to approach her then and there all he could do was to remain where he was ready to come to her assistance if assistance should be needed no question had he in his mind as to general falcon's courage and he noted with satisfaction that for all general falcon's sixty-five years he did not appear by any means the sort of man with whom a personage of ordinary strength would care to get into a quarrel but bellarmine was by no means assured of falcon's discretion he feared that falcon's adoration for his princess might lead him to fancy an affront in every curious look the crime of les majestes in every whisper all bellarmine could do was to keep himself unseen while watching carefully the surroundings and the movements of the strange pair of spectators who took all his interest and all his eyes and ears away from the stage and the performances there they sat the soldier and the princess conforming themselves evidently as much as possible to the ways of the place general falcon had a huge tankard of beer before him to which he occasionally applied his lips with an expression of utterly overdone gratification his companion had a lemon squash general falcon bought a cigar from one of the peripatetic waiters but bellarmine's keen eye soon observed that he quietly dropped that cigar under the seat and substituted for it one which he stole from his own coat pocket his companion presently touched him on the arm and bellarmine could distinctly hear the imperious words cigarette please general falcon tried a look of remonstrance but his companion was inexorable and presently bellarmine saw the daughter of the stewards smoking a cigarette with the most perfect complacency and apparent comfort he felt his forehead growing hot with anxiety and alarm sometimes one of the company near mary beaton and her companion got up and passed the girl with some word of apology for disturbing her and bellarmine was in perfect agony lest some of her movements might betray her sex if she would only put her hands in her pockets he thought to himself that would look schoolboyish at all events he trembled at the very graciousness the almost oriental elaborateness of courtesy with which mary replied to each passing apology from this or that airy or airyette she bent her graceful head to a stout elderly personage who squeezed by her and who made some jocular remark upon his own fatness and the mere movement of mary's head frightened bellarmine it was so intensely feminine surely he was thinking in agony that old personage who is likely to be the father of at least half a dozen daughters will see that it is a girl and not a boy who is good-naturedly making way for him and politely acknowledging his apologies but the worthy citizen went his unsuspicious way and bellarmine breathed freely again for the moment at least what especially kept bellarmine in alarm was not the dread of anything anybody might guess at or the dread of what somebody might say to miss beaton 
but a very reasonable fear concerning the demeanor of general falcon if that warrior could only be relied upon to restrain himself so far as to behave with coolness and discretion and not to take offence where it was anyhow possible to avoid it then things would go right enough for even if an elderly gentleman did choose to bring his daughter dressed in boy's clothes to such a place or were suspected of having done so no great harm could come of that but suppose there were a quarrel suppose there were a row suppose falcon were to knock some one down suppose the police were called in and a general removal were made to the police station would it be possible for mary's secret to be kept then will they never go away he kept asking himself will they remain seated there until the end what can there be in this business to interest her surely she ought to have had enough of it by this time when does she mean to go at last at last they were going miss beaton apparently had had enough of it she touched falcon and said something to him and falcon got up and prepared to lead the way the stage was empty at the time which made bellarmin anxious because eyes that would otherwise have been occupied with the mummers were free to amuse themselves by scanning the faces of departing guests he drew into the shelter of his box until they had passed beneath him and then he hastened after them they had to make their way through long dingy passages lighted by flaring and naked jets of gas these passages were obstructed here and there by little groups of loungers and smokers and progress was not to be made with anything like quickness bellarmin kept well behind but did not lose sight of the pair for a second suddenly he became aware somehow that another man as well as he was following and watching them he had not yet had time to see what this man was like but he had come out of the theatre at the moment that bellarmin left it and he was almost keeping step with bellarmin in following miss beaton and falcon perhaps this observer had made a guess as to the real sex of the supposed boy and was only following from motives of mere curiosity still it would be well bellarmin thought to keep a close watch on him so he fell back just a little more and then the other observer who looked like a mechanic out of employment and down on his luck pushed suddenly forward and made an attempt to hustle past miss beaton he hustled past her so roughly that she looked round in surprise and then he hustled back again jostling her a second time he was drunk perhaps and he probably did not mean any rudeness and it would not matter much if only general falcon did not lose his temper falcon was hurrying mary on as quickly as he could either he had not seen the man jostle her or he was wisely determined to take no notice bellarmin felt as if he could have embraced him for his self-control and prudence but the jostling one was evidently resolved to make his presence felt and inconvenient he was preparing for a forward movement again he had the staggery walk of a man who had been drinking and yet bellarmin was convinced somehow that the drunkenness was a sham and that there was some deliberate purpose in all these movements this would never do he thought if there were any more jostling falcon would be sure to lose his self-control just at this moment there was a sharp turn in the passage and for an instant miss beaton and falcon were out of sight the man whom bellarmin was watching was about to make a rush after them 
Bellarmin had got his chance, and he made prompt use of it. He caught the man by the collar and drew him back firmly, steadily, not roughly, but with a quiet and decidedly persuasive force. "'Tell me,' Bellarmin asked in the calmest voice, but with the manner of one who puts a question to which he has authority to enforce an answer. "'Who sent you here?' The manner in which the question was put had its effect. The man, who was at first about to return some rough reply, became embarrassed and merely stammered out, "'Who sent me here?' yes i want to know don't attempt to make any noise or i will hand you over to a policeman at once you were sent here to make some disturbance who sent you this was all the purest conjecture on bellarmin's part but he could see in a moment that his shot had told the appearance of drunkenness had already vanished the man he was talking to had become perfectly sober in any case Bellarmin was carrying his point by merely keeping him in talk. "'Who the devil are you, and what right have you to ask me any question? Are you the owner of this show?' "'All that it concerns you to know,' said Bellarmin, "'is that I am able to have you in the lock-up within the next five minutes, unless you give me your name and address, so that I may have you looked after, if there should be need. What were you sent here to do?' tell me at once the man smiled a sort of apologetic smile well not much harm after all governor i was sent here to have a look after an old bloke and a boy bellarmin's mind was relieved the man was evidently speaking sincerely and had no notion that the supposed boy was not a boy and you were sent to get up a row well yes i was for what reason don't know governor a german chap who looked like a footman out of livery came here two hours ago and saw me at the door of the drinking-place here and he got into talk with me and asked me if i'd seen an elderly bloke and a boy and i said no i hadn't and he said would i watch them and follow them and get up a row if he give me a quid and i said yes i would and i got the quid and i did my best to get up the row now didn't i at this moment a policeman was passing out whose face bellarmin knew and who recognized him he was an officer who at one time used to attend in the house of commons and he made a most deferential semi-military salute as he passed bellarmin bellarmin's present companion was deeply impressed and began to think he was very lucky in getting out of the whole business seeing that there were evidently important personages on the other side yes you did your best bellarmin said and you were near doing too much you would have got yourself into terrible trouble i can tell you now i would recommend you to go quietly home i believe your story i believe you don't know who it was that wanted to get you into mischief don't know from adam governor so help me well here's another sovereign for you to get out of this at once give your name and address to this officer you will take this man's name and address for me officer please certainly sir another semi-military salute a large dirty hand opened and closed on bellarmin's shining coin that incident was happily over bellarmin somewhat relieved hurried after falcon and mary he stood in the comparative darkness of the door and he looked out he saw to his surprise that falcon 
was putting miss beaton into a heavy carriage on the box of which he could see by the flashing lamps that a man was sitting who seemed to him remarkably like a german servant of lady saxon's whom he sometimes but rarely saw at her london house at once there came into his mind the thought of what he had just heard from the bribed disturber of order about the german chap who looked like a footman mary appeared to be offering some remonstrance why are we to go in this thing he distinctly heard her say in her clear voice which now had a note of petulance in it i would rather go in a hansom as we came where did we get this thing i tell you there is danger falcon said we can't go back the way we came he was looking fearfully around him as if afraid of listeners do get in i will tell you all mary got in there were very few loungers about just now for the entertainment inside was in full blast and the hall had reclaimed all its audience bellarmin saw his bribed friend near he was evidently going back to his seat bellarmin touched him will you tell that gentleman the elderly gentleman there at the carriage door you know that someone here wishes to speak to him for a moment before he goes then bellarmin retreated far back into the hall quite out of sight of the carriage and its occupant in a moment falcon came striding in with an air of mingled impatience and alarm mr bellarmin he exclaimed in anything but a tone of welcome i didn't know you were here i happened to be here at least i came here i was told to come here i don't quite know by whom or why but anyhow i am here and i don't want miss beaton to know it i couldn't help just now hearing you say there was danger to her falcon contracted his brows i didn't know there was anyone listening he said well i didn't mean to listen but i had pretty good reason to believe that some trap or other was laid for you by somebody and i thought i might be of some service oh falcon's grim look relaxed a little you too he laid stress on the two you too thought there was some danger i don't know about danger but there are tricks of some kind going on well this is all i want to say we haven't time to say much now go home with miss beaton i'll take a hansom and drive after you she need never know sir falcon said sternly his looks recovering all their former harshness miss beaton needs no protection but that which her friends her friends can give i shall take care of her come come bellarmin said good-humouredly you can't offend me general falcon and i hope i may count myself among miss beaton's friends you will allow me to do this much i dare say nothing will happen but if anything should happen why i shall be there and i am pretty well known to the police as we say here and i know i can be of some service to you but of course miss beaton is not to know before he had finished the words falcon broke away with what sounded very like a muttered imprecation when bellarmin went to the door again the carriage was driving off bellarmin jumped into the only hansom that was near the door very likely the hansom which had brought marion falcon and which was to have taken them back and he bade the driver follow the carriage and keep it well in view then he began to think things over there was the anonymous letter which had sped him to the east end there was the attempt to get up a row an attempt promoted by a german chap 
there was the carriage with a german chap on the box in whom bellarmin fully believed that he recognized one of lady saxon's servants there was falcon's sudden change of purpose and his declaration about danger what did all this mean if fairly put together was there danger and what could it be was there no danger greater than that of some spiteful device to get up a scandal and bring mary into ridicule could lady saxon be malign enough to have any part in such a scheme was falcon's alarm about real danger merely a sort of monomania with him all this bellarmin could not settle for himself with any amount of cogitation the one thing certain was that somebody or other had got to know in advance of the east end expedition and had tried to turn it to the advantage of some malignant purpose was it not possible that lady saxon might have come to know of some trick some malicious sort of practical joke and might have sent him the anonymous letter with the sincere and kindly purpose of giving him an opportunity of sheltering and serving mary beaton yes that was possible to be sure but was it likely what then about the german servant and the effort to get up a quarrel bellarmin felt much disturbed and distressed to him the only satisfactory thought about the whole affair was the thought that he was there that he was following close behind her that if anything unpleasant or alarming should happen he would be much better able to take counsel for her and to take care of her than her devoted but rather eccentric adherent general falcon bellarmin followed the carriage through miles and miles of street at last he had the satisfaction of seeing it stop at mary's own door in kensington his cab drove slowly by he saw falcon get out and open the door with a latch-key then he saw mary get out at least he was left to assume that it was mary for she was wrapped from head to foot in a great cloak which completely concealed her boy's dress he saw her enter the house he heard the door close behind them he saw the carriage drive away and then he bade his cabman take him to st james place End of volume three, chapter six